and perfect gift. Amen. And there's much to give him praise for, much to give thanks for. The psalmist writes, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name, his name. Give to him glorious praise, glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you, sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name, O Lord Most High. Come thou fount of every blessing, amen.
God's people said. Now, before you're seated, I'm going to invite you to take a minute to greet um, greet someone that you haven't seen in a while. Don't everybody run to the sound booth to greet Daniel, who's uh, home for a few days. Daniel, it's good to have you, man. So uh, just take a minute, greet somebody, uh, greet somebody around you, will you? Good morning. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. If I could somehow grab our attention back towards the front again. I, I, I'm, if we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Bob. It's good to see you, and uh, it's my privilege to, to be the pastor here at Brush Prairie. I wanted to share just a couple of announcements, things that are in the bulletin, but I especially want to point out. Immediately after the service today, uh, many of you already knew about this, but even if this had, had slipped your attention or you didn't hear about it until just now, please come. We're having a Thanksgiving potluck lunch immediately after the morning service and that'll be followed by our annual business meeting. Don't let the meeting scare you away from the potluck lunch. This is going to be delicious and I look forward to sharing that time with you. Uh, also coming up, uh, it being this time of year, we will be hanging the greens this coming Saturday, Saturday, November 30th at 4 p.m. There will be soup and, 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 and drinks provided. Come and just help decorate the, the, the auditorium for the Christmas season. We have to have that done because December 6th and 7th is going to be Christmas jazz, Friday and Saturday night, and you, there's still time to sign up, say, yes, I want to come, yes. Yes, I want to bring these people with me, or yes, I want to host a table. And uh, then uh, we're going to fill that table with people we're inviting, or maybe you're going to host a table for those folks just from the community who will be coming in that night. This is a wonderful time. We will have, we'll have some of the best jazz musicians in the Pacific Northwest doing uh, favorite Christmas music. We'll have an intermission. There'll be, a, there'll be a short gospel presentation that goes with the night, and uh, also a wonderful catered dessert. So dessert will be provided. Come host a table or come and enjoy and engage with the people around you in tables here in the auditorium. So that's Christmas jazz. If you missed it last year, you won't want to miss it again. Uh, two nights, the 6th and the 7th. Also, we have a Christmas project each year, and this year our Christmas project is, is going to be Clark County Young Lives. Uh, we'll hear more about that next week when somebody from that ministry is with us, but uh, there's only two Sundays left to be able to participate in their holiday wreath fundraiser. So there's an insert on that if you'd like to... Um, know more about that, you can fill out the insert. You can talk to Kelly Wallstrom in the foyer today after the service. Um, 
or contact her even after that. You can, you can also do that next week. But I wanted to give you a heads up. As I'm looking around at other things that are in the announcements, I'm not seeing anything that really demands my attention because I want to get to this next one, which is to in, in, introduce to you Dwayne, who is the executive director of Friends of the Carpenter Ministry here in Vancouver. We, we wanted in this anniversary year, as we're connecting with our community, wanting to know more as a church about what the Lord is doing in our community. And so, Dwayne, good to have you this morning to share about that. Here we go. How did I do that? <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Bob. Thank good you, Dwayne. It's a delight for me to be here to worship with you. I'll tell you about some of the connections we have. This is my first time in your church, but the body of Christ is such a beautiful uh, connection, and, uh, and there are many special relationships that already have. Friends of the Carpenter is a day shelter here in Vancouver. Uh, we're located about uh, west of downtown Vancouver, uh, about a mile uh, off the freeway, just off of Mill Plain. And so I've Many of the homeless come to our churches. Uh, uh, myself, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I've served First Presbyterian Church in Vancouver for many years, and uh, we're right here on Main Street. And uh, sometimes, uh, every time of the week, 
sometimes every day we have homeless that come to church looking for help. And truly, they, they, they just saw the church not the place to grow, not so much as a place to grow in their faith, uh, but, but kind of as a charity they needed to come to. And I'm sure this is a result why they come every morning. Uh, charity, more often than not, helps people out. It seldom helps them out. And our homeless people would come and, you know, give benevolence that we would give. And I was always invite them to come back and get involved in the life of our church there. Well, I think they're not worthy to come to church. So why would somebody that has $200,000 a year and lives in Waverly and has rubble, they're a little rough on their back. You know, they don't really feel like they're fitting. And sadly, in our churches and many churches, uh, people are really absent. They don't really know what to say. Sometimes what they do say isn't really helpful. Uh, it can be uh, focusing on the, on the problem rather than the person. And so the Friendship Center really creates a place where people can sort of, you know, just work together, uh, have table fellowship. We gather around the Lord's table, and everyone is welcome. At the Friendship Center, it's the same thing. The work there, everyone is welcome, everyone's getting ready. There's free food chat and chatter uh, kind of gets loose. And I tell folks that the Friendship Center is more like the stable our Lord was born in rather than the churches that we work in. And today, King Septon stepped down and bowed down and put together the Appalachian Church. The connections are so uh, eternal. Uh, Mary Barrett secretary of First Presbyterian Church. The secretaries are almost always the first ones that people think of. And uh, I was always the associate pastor there. And uh, so uh, I would tell folks, uh, the associate's job description is determined by whatever the senior vice pointer is. And uh, though they hired me for youth ministry when I was young, and then I got to do fellowship and education and other aspects of the life of the church, dealing with the homeless has been always on my desk. And if I wasn't there, poor Mary had to deal with it. But um, but, but that was always on my desk. Uh, and, and I realized that what we were doing was ineffective and, and not changing lives and in many ways hypocritical because people did come back to church. So, Mary, uh, I thank God for Mary and uh, for getting to be here for us this morning. Uh, our shop foreman that we had for over 10 years uh, is the father of the eighth grade at Atlanta. And so uh, uh, we were tickled to greet him uh, for being here with us. Um, you guys, do any of you remember Bob and uh, Sandy Ruby? Now, Bob was on our board, and uh, Bob is the one that named the Friendship Center. Uh, we would have called it something else, and Bob was the one that came up with the name Friendship Center because it's a manufactory of friendships. So we're really grateful that Bob did that. And now uh, Doug Kepler uh, is a very active volunteer. I saw him yesterday. He's doing well, keeping us encouraged. But, uh, but he's in a good one. He was one that was kind of, you know, responsible for getting the Friendship Center uh, founded. So beautiful connections that we have that we talked about. And thank you for letting us be here today. Thank you. <laughs> hang on, hang on. I want us to just take a, take a moment, you know, the, the cross as he, as he told that story and, and the, their, their effort is in relationships. Um, broken, broken people, by God's grace, uh, sh shown Christ's beauty and um, made beautiful in him by his grace. I want us to, to pray. There's, there's people in Vancouver, but, but, you know, even right in our midst this morning with the, just the, the stuff of life that presses in upon us. Um, we've, we've heard things just this morning about uh, people in, in trouble and uh, way beyond our strength. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on this ministry. Lord, we pray for Duane and the others who serve there. Father, thank you that they have left um, um, 
aspects of their beautiful work, your work through them. You have, you, you have left that in our midst through the sound booth and other, other things. Father, we, we pray that even some of these articles that are on the display table, Lord, might make wonderful gifts, that they're, they're, they'd be a special gift in our own families because there's a story behind them, a story of the working of your grace. Father, would you, would you use them in that way? Would you bless this ministry? Father, would you use them as, as an example to us as well, Lord, to, to reach out, to look at, and to see, to see the hurt around about us, even in lives right here in this, in this body, Lord. There are ways that you would use us to care for others, that you will meet our needs, Lord. Uh, you will meet us in our brokenness. Father, thank you for your grace this morning. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for his work through this ministry. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a, a song I think we've done a couple of times. My heart is filled with thankfulness. And as we've already mentioned this morning, there's so much to be thankful to the Lord for. So as we sing this chorus, I encourage you to don't let the words go by and just, just sing them, but really let your heart overflow with gratitude and gratefulness for what God has done. First and foremost, in giving us his son, Jesus Christ, amen.
We're going to be talking about uh, Daniel this morning. Uh, Daniel from the Bible, one of the better known people in the Bible. And I wonder if the kids that are coming down have heard any stories. You can kind of gather in this way a little bit. If you want to, let's kind of move to the center a little bit, just so I'm not so far from any of you. Have you heard a story about somebody named Daniel in the Bible? Have you? You've heard a story about Daniel? What's a story that you've heard about Daniel from the Bible? Yeah? About the 180, uh, chapter 1. Okay, Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody's heard about Daniel in the lion's den. That happens way at the end of his life. Daniel was an old man when he was thrown into the lion's den. All right? What about Daniel's friends? Have you ever heard about Daniel's friends? Daniel had three friends. What happened to Daniel's three friends? Yeah? They, they're the ones that were tossed into the fiery furnace. That's right. The king tried to kill them by tossing them into the fiery furnace, and yet that didn't happen either. Uh, there was, a, there was a somebody else with them. Well, I don't want to tell too much of the story, but how did Daniel and his friends get to the point that they had that kind of courage to trust God even with their own lives? How did they get there? I want to talk about Daniel when he was much, much, much younger, just a little older than you, okay? He was just a teenager, and yet he's taken away from his home. He's taken away from his parents. And he's taken off to school. And there at that school, they're trying to teach Daniel a whole new way of thinking and living. They don't want him to follow God anymore. They want to teach him new ways to, to think and new ways to live, new ways to behave. Okay? But Daniel decides when he's away from his parents and on his own, he decides he, the faith that he learned from his parents, he's going to hold to. He's going to continue to believe and trust his God. And that's what, that's what made Daniel strong. You see, he grew up in a, in a home probably where they taught him about God. He learned about God when he was small, when he was a, a kid, just like you. He learned about God. But is that Daniel's faith or is Daniel's family just happened to believe? What will you do when you're away from your family? Will you still obey God? Will you still follow him? Will you still trust God? When are you away from your family? Maybe when you're at school and other kids are doing things you shouldn't do. Are you going to follow them or are you going to remember things you learned in your family about how to follow God? Maybe when you're at a friend's house and, and your friend wants you to do something. Are you going to do what they want you to do or are you going to remember the things you learned from your family about how to follow God and how to trust Him? You see, because it doesn't just matter for that day. It mattered for Daniel 
many, many, many years later, even in a den full of lions. He could do it then. He could be a hero then because he learned what it was that when he was out with other people, away from his own family, still to follow and obey God, he'd learned from his family at home, okay? That's what I want you to do. As we dig into the book of Daniel now, you're going to hear some of these stories. You're going to hear about the fiery furnace. You're going to hear about that den of lions again. And as you do, think about the big issue is, what will I do? Will I still follow God and do what's right even when I'm away from my own family who taught me those things? Will I still do what's right just like Daniel did? Okay? All right, go on back to your parents. And we're going to get into the book of Daniel. I have these, these Christmas jazz. I think I dropped it out of my bulletin earlier. Did you get one of these? The Christmas jazz? This is meant to be an invitation ticket or tool. You can use it. Mark it on the back. Which day you're inviting people to so they don't show up for dessert twice. Not that any of us would do that. But um, um, use these as just a help in for the people that you're going to invite. If you need more of them, there should be more scattered around in the foyer. Or use that communication card and say, I need more invitation cards, and we will get them to you. Probably on the table where you can sign up and talk about guests and so forth at the, in the foyer. You can, you can do that. Well, we want to talk about Daniel, and some of you are probably wondering, well, here's Pastor Bob swerving all over Route 66. I mean, how did we get from Chronicles all the way over to Daniel? Well, I had a whole week off to think about it, and so I, I said, we're going to go to Daniel next. Well, actually, there's a reason for this. If you look at the way that the book of Second Chronicles ends, it ends with a captivity all the way through to King Cyrus and King Cyrus's decree to let the people go. And that's the span of the book of Daniel as well. Daniel covers, well, what was it like in the midst of that captivity? All the way to the point that God uses this man named Cyrus to release his people, to send them back to Jerusalem from that exile, that captivity in Babylon. So we're not so far off the storyline. Another reason I wanted to go to Daniel is because not only does it, does it speak to that, okay, what happens next now that it, God's people have, have entered into this exile? What are they going to do there? How are they going to live now that they're away from home? But Daniel also tells us a whole lot about the future. The book of Daniel tells us a whole lot about the, the uh, second coming of our Lord and Savior. Actually, it talks about his first coming and his second coming. And we're about to enter the, what's called the Advent season. The Advent season is the coming of Christ. We're as we remember his first coming, the nativity, his birth in Bethlehem, where God is born as a human, the incarnation. God took upon himself, he clothed himself with humanity, and his first coming is coming in humanity to actually die for us. And then, and, and as, as, as we remember that first coming, where he came and he lived and he died and he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he promised to come again. And the Advent season is a time of year where we rem we. Remember the first coming and anticipate his return. And Daniel's got a lot to say about his return. So I've divided the book of Daniel into two weeks. I know we're, we've been doing one Bible book per week as we're trying to get that big bird's eye view of, of all of Scripture. But Daniel divides very nicely into two in, in, into two. The, the first six chapters are really about Daniel in terms of... Um, 
Daniel's life in exile, and the last six chapters, 7 through 12, are Daniel's prophetic visions about the coming of God's everlasting kingdoms. How is it that a man of faith will live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world? That's chapters 1 to 6. How will we as believers in Christ live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world in a way that honors God, in a way that worships God? And then... Chapter 7 through 12, answer the question or speak to the question, when is it that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ? Okay? So it fits very nicely into two, and that, that second half of Daniel is a great way to start off that Advent season of four Sundays before Christmas. So that's why we're in Daniel for two weeks at this time. I've entitled it A True Testimony in Troubled Times because these are difficult times to live in for Daniel. If you're an Israelite and you have just had some of your people carried off into exile and there's more coming, well, how do you live in the midst of those troubled times? Daniel uh, or people like Daniel in the past had lived in a a God-centered country, a God-centered society where the temple was the center of national life. The presence of God in their midst was the center of their national life. Together it was their identity. And now they've been taken away from that. And they've been thrust into the midst of a godless world. Godless in the sense that they had lots of gods, but godless in the sense as they lived without reference to the true and living God. That's not unlike our situation today, is it? We, we live in a godless world, and I don't say that speaking of any particular immorality. I say a godless world because it's a world that lives without reference to the true and living God. Oh, there are many gods that people follow. Whether it's a material god, whether it's an ambition god, or whether it's various deities and philosophies of men and, and all kinds of spiritualities. But we are living in the midst of a godless age, and how will we live a true testimony in these troubled times, and that, I think, there are things in these first six chapters of Daniel that have a lot to teach us about how to do that in a way that best honors God and shows his grace. A true testimony in troubled times. Keep in mind, when was Daniel written? When was Daniel written? We think about Daniel, you read the story, you say, well, Daniel is in the midst of captivity, so we assume it's written for people in the midst of the captivity. No. It's remembering what it was like in the midst of the captivity, and it's remembering these things that happened with Daniel and how God delivered him in the midst of them. But as you read Daniel, you realize, well, Daniel records the end of the Babylonian captivity. Daniel records that time when people were sent back to Jerusalem again to rebuild a temple. And how will they live differently? They're going to live still in troubled times. Even though they're back home, it's still going to be the age of the nations, the age of the Gentiles. Israel will not be that Davidic kingdom as it was before. Not for a while. Not until the son of David, the Christ, Jesus, comes and rules. We still look forward to that. But in the midst, how will those who believe in God live in the midst of these troubled times? That's the point of the book of Daniel. Something for that generation that returned. How would they live in those troubled times? There's something for us. How will we live in these troubled times in the midst of a society that does not believe in our God, though they might know something about him, as we'll find was true with Daniel, how will we live in a way that gives a true testimony of him? Well, I want to I jump right into it. And I, I, I alluded to the first story with the kids, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, let me just jump right in. We'll, we'll start reading in Daniel chapter 1. In verse 1, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
Now, this is in the year 605 B.C. There were actually three times captives were taken away from, Bab- from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was the first the first of those taken in exile, and this was sort of the polite exile. This was the how-would-you-like-a-full-ride scholarship to the University of Babylon exile. I mean, full-ride. I mean, this was, this was tuition, room, and board. This was everything. And this wasn't in those cheesy little dorms. I mean, this was, this, was, this was the University of Babylon, and they took, and it was a selective, competitive scholarship. They took the best of the, of the young men of the city, and they happened to also be the children of the nobility and of the royal family. And they invited them. This was an offer you couldn't refuse. They invited them to come to Babylon and get their Bachelor of Arts from the University of Babylon. They would have the best of instruction that the world could offer. And they couldn't say no. And so they didn't. Off they went. But how would they live there? How would they live there? As they're raised up and they're given new names, the attempt is to have a new identity pressed upon them that not only would these be, these young men would be subtle hostages to keep those in Jerusalem from towing the line and supporting Babylon, but they would also be raised up to think as Babylonians, to view the world as Babylonians, to be loyal to the king of Babylon rather than to their heritage to serve the king of Babylon, perhaps one day as some of his officials even back in Jerusalem, representing the king of Babylon to their Jewish people. That's what's going on as as they're being enculturated into the ways of the world, the ways of Babylon. And yet it doesn't quite stick with Daniel. Daniel drew a line. Daniel resolved in verse 8 that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the, of, the, of the eunuchs or the officials to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, what's going on here? Daniel, he's not going to defile himself by eating of this same meat and wine that was used to serve the king's table. This is supposed to be good food. But the problem was there were probably... There was probably bacon with the eggs. There was probably um, a nice pulled pork sandwich for lunch. There was probably shellfish for dinner, the kind that a good Jewish boy ought not to eat. Things that were forbidden by the law of Moses. Things that which a, a faithful Jewish believer would show their allegiance to God by keeping his word. In fact, it was by not keeping his word that got these people into this mess of exile in the first place. And Daniel had resolved in his heart that he's not going to defile himself and eat that which is against God's decree for him to eat. He doesn't make a case about it for what the Babylonians... Babylonians can eat whatever they want. But he asks permission. He does it graciously. And God gives him favor. There's still obstacles in the way. And yet, and yet he says, well, let's just do a test for 10 days. And he puts his case in God's hands. He trusts God with his situation. And, he, and is expecting that God will deliver him. And God does. Daniel knows who he is. He knows whose he is. He knows that he's not just one of these lots of people that have been carted away to Babylon from all the surrounding countries that Babylon has conquered. He knows that he is a follower of the true and living God. 
And God has given his followers particular instructions, and Daniel is going to walk in the ways of his God. He knows who he is. And changing the location doesn't change who he is. Changing the environment, the circumstances, or the company does not change who Daniel is. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession so that you may proclaim the glories of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the midst of this world, number one, we dare not forget who we are. We do not see ourselves merely the way that everybody else sees us. We don't know other people or ourselves according to the natural flesh any longer. No, no, I'm a child of God. I'm an heir of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. I am one of his peculiar people. And you say, amen. That's okay. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're a believer in Christ. You've been born again by the blood of Christ, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. You are his unique and different and distinct and peculiar people. Called out of darkness to display his marvelous light. Don't forget who and whose you are. It's more than that, though. Know who God is. Know who your God is in the midst. Well, you get to chapter 2, and, and the king has a dream. Some of you kids are thinking, you know, I've had, I had scary dreams. Well, cheer up. Be of good courage. Did you know that the, the king, the greatest ruler of all the known world, had a scary dream? And he was so scared by his dream that he wanted to know that this means something important. This is a big dream, and I don't get it. So he wants to know, well, what's, 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 what's this about? And he asks his wise men and his philosophers and, and uh, all the sorcerers of Babylon to come together and, and uh, do all kinds of weird things probably to determine what his dream means. And they come together and he says, tell me what my dream means. And, and, and they say to him, well, absolutely, king, tell us a dream and we'll interpret it for you. They'll come up with something on the fly. I mean, these guys were good. They could think on their feet. And king says, no, 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 you're not going to do that. You tell me what the dream is that I had, and then I'll know you can tell me its interpretation. There you go. Somebody wants to give you the meaning of your dream, say, absolutely, tell me what the dream was, and then and if they get the dream right, well, maybe you're going to have some confidence in what they say about it. That's what the king is doing. And they say, oh, king, nobody can do that. Only the gods in the heavens could do that, and their dwelling place is not with man. They're not here. And so the king says, well, what good are you then? If you cannot tell me things that I can't know myself, if you cannot, if you cannot represent to me a true God of heaven who is beyond us, what good are you? What good is your spirituality? And so he decides, well, the wise men of Babylon are excess. We're going to downsize. We're going to close the department, but when the, king of when the king of Babylon closed the department and the people were no longer needed, he got rid of them. Literally, all the wise men are going to be killed. And word gets to Daniel and his friends because they're part of this wise men company. This probably happened just after graduation. God honored them. God, God honored their resolve, and God had exalted them among all their fellows in school with them, and he put them in high positions. And, and this happens, it seems, immediately after that. And so the captain of the, of, of the armed guard is making the rounds, and he comes to Daniel's house, and he says, you guys are coming with me. You're all going to be executed. Won't this be fun? And Daniel says, Whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. Well, slow down. What's going on? And 
So he tells Daniel what's, what's happened and, wh- and why the king's so angry. And he says, make an appointment with the king. Make an appointment with the king for us to come and tell him what his dream is and what it means. We'll be there. We'll do it. Our God will answer. And so then Daniel goes home and with his friends, and they pray. They pray, oh, God, you are the one. Oh, God, you are the one who, who holds all these things in your hand. You are the one who knows the secrets of men. God, show us. Show us. Hear our prayer. And God did. And they thanked God. And then they went to the king. They said, oh, king. And Nebuchadnezzar, I love, I love what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says in chapter 2, verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream I've seen and its interpretation? And Daniel says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Short answer, no. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to, the, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. He says, you dreamed of a statue. You dreamed of a statue that had a head of gold and it had a chest and arms of silver and it had a, it had a waist, a torso of brass and it had legs of iron. He begins to tell about this dream and the details of it. And then he interprets it. And king's saying, yeah, 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 this was his dream. And God has shown you what's going to happen. You, you are a great kingdom. You are Babylon. You are the head of gold, but there's going to be a kingdom coming after you. It's, a, it's this other kingdom. It'll be lesser than you. It won't be quite as good as Babylon. And then after that's going to come another kingdom. After that's going to come another kingdom. We'll talk about those kingdoms and nations next week. It gets into the prophecies, the second half of the book. There's a foreshadowing of it here. But part of the message here is king, Babylon's going good. But it cannot last. This kingdom cannot last. It will be overtaken by another, which will be overtaken by another, until finally a stone cut without human hands falls from heaven and strikes that statue at the last kingdom represented by the feet. And the whole thing collapses. And that stone grows into a mighty mountain that fills the earth. And it's the kingdom of God, which will never end. That's his dream. That's the interpretation of it. And the king says, wow. This is before the days of HDTV and everything. So he's like, wow, what a story. The king answered and said, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He could tell him the dream and what it means. And so the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. He promotes him again, the chief prefect over all the other wise men. He had, by stepping in, Daniel had saved their lives. By stepping in and declaring the truth, he had saved the lives of all of these pagan pretenders. Think about it. All these false religions and spiritists, and Daniel saves their lives by speaking truth. Oh, there's something there for us. Know who God is. In the midst of the spiritual, spiritual buffet that's around us and everybody picking and choosing what looks good to them, know how to pray to and to speak for the true and living God. We need to know who he is and to speak for him of his truth to the people of our day. And not to be intimidated. Nebuchadnezzar gets this dream. But there's aspects of it he's not crazy about. 
Namely, the part that Babylon is only the head of gold. That Babylon is going to someday end. And the king says, no, 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 my kingdom's going to go on forever. No, the dream specifically said it's God's kingdom that will go on forever. The kingdoms of this world will not. But that's the part that, Dan, that King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like. The king of Babylon doesn't like that part, and so he decides, I'm going to build my own statue. And he builds an, his own statue in chapter 3. He builds a statue that is a statue all of gold. There it is. Same statue, but it's gold. It's all of gold. What's he saying? He says, my kingdom will never end. Babylon's going to go on forever. Oh, <laughs> you silly king. No, it isn't. But he insists. And we don't know where Daniel is in this part because the story's bigger than Daniel. The story's not just about Daniel. Daniel's not mentioned in chapter 3. It's for others who believe as well. It's even for us. And they say everybody, when the music starts and the bands begin to play, and there's all these instruments that are never instruments that are recorded in Israelite worship. So apparently they're just used in this pagan worship, and one of them is bagpipes. Just wanted to point that out for Sean Sullivan. Okay, so bagpipes are pagan Babylonian instruments. Now that we've got that settled, let's move on. Isn't it interesting how God redeems the things of this world? I have stood at a graveside, and I have heard bagpipes, bagpipes, which in the Bible are only mentioned as an as a instrument used in pagan worship of an idol. And I've heard those bagpipes, pipes, off in the distance, playing amazing grace. Oh, we're a lot like that. Bag of hot air, being squeezed and wailing. And yet, God would use us to his glory. Redeemed like that knotted cross and used for his glory. That's what God does. And these three stand up and they said, no, 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 king. We're not going to bow to your image. And Nebuchadnezzar gets all mad. You're not going to bow to my statue. You're not going to affirm that Babylon goes on forever. And we don't know if the statue even looked like Nebuchadnezzar a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised. They said, no, we're not going to do it. He says, he says, don't you know what's going to happen to you? I'm going to, you you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. He said, I'll, let me get to chapter 3, actually give you, the, give you the story there. Nebuchadnezzar says to them, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is this God that would deliver you out of my hands? And, they, and, they, and, the, and the youth say something in reply to him. They basically use his earlier testimony against him. Literally, what they say to him in reply is, is if our God whom we are serving exists, as you, Nebuchadnezzar, in the last chapter says that he's the God of gods, that's the one. He is certainly able to deliver us out of your hands. Will he? Don't know. You're in the midst of trouble. What is God going to do? Is he going to remove that trouble from you? I don't know. Certainly he could. How will it work out? We don't know. But whatever he does, because we know that he is able, because he is, he is God. He is the only God. Whatever way that goes, we are not going to bow to mere idols instead. And so he, he commands the furnace to be heated up seven times normal. And he throws them in. And the guards, that, it's so hot, the guards that toss them into the furnace are burned and are killed by the heat that's coming out of this big furnace. 
And yeah, there they are. And he looks in. And there they are, the three of them. They're up. They're walking around. All that the, f- the heat of the furnace seems to have done is burned away the ropes that bound them. And there they are up and walking around in the midst of the furnace. And look, who, there's a fourth one in the furnace with them. And he, he looks like a son of God. Is that a reference to Christ with us in the midst of our troubles? Or is it merely a heavenly message as the angels in the Old Testament were also called sons of God? Is it merely one of God's messengers that is there with them to minister to the saints in time of trouble? Don't really know. But God has not left them alone. That we know. And Nebuchadnezzar said, I I put three in and there's four in there now. And he calls them back out again. And he smells them. I don't know why he smelled them, but apparently he smelled them. And they didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't smell like they got their clothes at a fire sale. No, no, no effect did this furnace have upon them. And he was a, the king was astonished. And he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, delivered his servants, who trusted in him. And this God has set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. That's taking a stand, isn't it? We will yield up our bodies. We will do whatever it costs to serve no other God except our own. What God has set before me, that I will do. I will not be intimidated. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of of whom, then, would I be afraid? Does that mean there aren't bad people? No. Does that mean that bad people will not do bad things? Does that mean that we will not be taken advantage of? No. But whom should I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. And his kingdom will never end. The kingdoms of this world will come crashing down. I need not fear the temporary in view of the eternal. Don't be intimidated. Look for, instead for God's mercy. Chapter 4 is a fantastic story. We're not going to go into all the details of it, but the king has another dream, and it frightens him. This king seems to be afraid of his dreams. He has a lot of scary dreams. He has this dream, and he doesn't know what it means. And Daniel comes and again tells him what it means. But Daniel's tone in this story is, is, is fantastic. Look at verse 19 of chapter 4. Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, that's the name the Babylonians gave him, was dismayed for a while hearing this dream. He was dismayed and his thoughts alarmed him. The king saw that on his face. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Because the dream was bad for the king. And Daniel cared. Daniel cared about this unbelieving king. Daniel cared about this man who had been the one to throw his three friends into the fiery furnace. Daniel cared about this man who had rejected his testimony about the meaning of the statue and the kingdoms that would come and God's kingdom that would last forever and who set up his own statue instead. And yet Daniel cared for this man. Tenderly, he would say, oh, that it was true for somebody else and not you, O king. I don't think that's just being polite. I think it's genuine for Daniel. Because as he goes on, he tells them what's going to happen. There's been a, a heavenly decree against you, O king. You have not humbled yourself, and so God has determined to humble you. 
And you are going to be cut down. You are going to be humbled. You are going to lose your mind so that you will walk about like a beast. You will eat grass like cattle for seven years. You're going to lose your right mind. Your kingdom is going to be taken out of your hand because you're not able to rule it. And there's actually a mental condition called boanthropy. It's rare where a, a person takes on animalistic behavior just like this. Observable cases have been documented. Boanthropy. A person acts like an animal. They're out of their right mind. And here's Nebuchadnezzar. And yet Daniel says to him, in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Maybe God will put it off. Maybe God will change his mind. That's Daniel's plea because Daniel wants mercy for the man. Daniel is looking for mercy for those around him, particularly the king whom he serves. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, however, verse 28. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking around on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Uh-oh. Why is that a big deal? I skipped a verse. Verse 25 is the key verse to the book of Daniel. These things are going to happen. For seven years, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to be humbled so drastically. Why? So that you will know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and the Most High gives them to whoever He will. Is this not great Babylon that I have built? To quote a more recent speaker, no, you didn't build that. Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't build that. God put that into your hand. What do you have that you did not receive? And Nebuchadnezzar says, nope, I did that. And it's taken away from him. It's taken away from him so that he instead might see God. And at the end of it, chapter 4 is fantastic. It's a testimony of, of Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the days, at the end of those seven years, verse 34, at the end, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heaven. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, well, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. The glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. I was established in my kingdom. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Was King Nebuchadnezzar born again? Did King Nebuchadnezzar come to faith in the true and living God out of all of his idols of Babylon? It sounds like it. Interesting, Babylonian captivity, there's a silent period about just over the last seven years. So more than just more than the last seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's life, we, we know nothing about. The annals are silent. The king lost his mind and they hid him away like a crazy uncle in a back courtyard somewhere. And he ate his grass. But then he was restored. God brought him low. And then God raised him up out of brokenness into glory. But in his right mind, finally, 
knowing the one true God. Well, chapter 5, you get, you get King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson who, who um, has rejected all of that, rejected what Nebuchadnezzar said. And um, chapter 5 opens, the issue is the temple. The issue is God's righteousness that King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson now, in the midst of armies of the Medo-Persian Empire surrounding Babylon, threatening to overtake the city, they're having a big party. The king is showing how strong he is by saying, I'm not worried, I'm not scared, let's have a party, let's have some wine, let's get drunk, they can't get in here. In fact, go, go to the storehouse and you know, let's show how great our gods are. Go to the storehouse and get those things that we captured from the Jerusalem temple. Bring those out and we will add those to our orgy and our party and, and our drunkenness. And we're going to pour wine and drink out of those cups that were meant for temple worship there in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, a hand appears. I don't know how big it was, but a hand appears and begins to write onto the wall right there behind the king. And he writes four words. Well, it got people's attention. I mean, they've been drinking a little bit anyway. Okay? And now really weird stuff starts happening. And so they, they, what does this mean? Nobody knows what it means. There is a spiritual stupor over the place. Nobody knows what it means. And the queen mother, who was, well, I won't go into all the politics involved, but she was also Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. She knew there is a man, there is a man who could interpret it. There is a man in the kingdom who could interpret it, she says. O king, live forever, let not your thoughts alarm you. I'm reading in verse uh, 10 of chapter 5. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your color change because his thoughts had alarmed him and his color had drained clear out of his face. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the whole in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father of the king, made him, and so on. Go ask Daniel is the short version, okay? And Daniel comes in. The king says, hey, if you can interpret this, I'm going to give you all kinds of stuff. I'm going to make you the third ruler of the kingdom. I'm going to elevate you. Daniel's been sidelined. He's been ignored. No, 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 we're going to elevate you. We're going to put you up. We're going to listen to you again. Daniel says, I don't want your stuff. I don't want your gold. I don't want your position because they're not going to last. What this means is you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And this very night, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. Remember the Most High God who rules in the, in the kingdoms of men? The Most High God who rules in these men's kingdoms and gives it to whoever he will? He's taking it. He's taking it back. We're moving on to silver. We're moving from the head of gold. We're moving on to the chest of silver. We're moving on to the next empire, just as God has said, because God is in charge. Now, is it any surprise when you get to chapter 6? And Daniel gets caught in a political trap, a political intrigue, because the only way they can bring Daniel down and take his place is by catching him doing what's right. So they said, well, let's make what's right illegal. Wow. We're close to those days, aren't we? Let's make what's right illegal. Let's, let's make saying or doing truth illegal. And that way we can catch him. And so they do. Because Daniel, after he knows this law against praying to anybody else except the king, has been put into effect. Daniel goes back and as before, as was his practice, three times a day because that's what the scripture said. The psalm talked about morning, noon, and evening, I will lift my prayers to you. 
And when Solomon dedicated the temple in Second Chronicles, he said, when your people are carried away in exile, when they have been disobedient to them and you've carried them away to exile, and they in that foreign land, when they turn toward this place, and when they pray toward this place, Lord, hear from heaven and forgive them their sins and restore them. That's how Daniel was praying because that's how the book told him to pray. So he opens his window, so he prays toward Jerusalem because that's what the book said. And he's not afraid of these men because the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men. He's able to trust God and follow him anyway. And you see, it's related to his faith in God. It's not just he's stubborn about praying. He prays three times because that's the pattern in the Psalms. He prays toward Jerusalem because in the midst of that captivity, that's exactly what God's people were supposed to do. And so that's what Daniel does. A true testimony in troubled times, know who you are. Know who God is. Don't, because you know who God is, you need not be intimidated. Whom should I fear? But toward those around you, those in need, don't look in judgment. Look for God's mercy toward them. God will judge them in his own time. Look for God's mercy and trust God and follow him anyway, even when it seems the whole world might be against you. God sent his own son into the rebellion. God sent his own son into this rebellious province. Daniel seems to be sent into Babylon to speak to this province of Babylon the truth of the one true God. God sent his own son into a rebellious province called Earth to speak his truth into this rebellious province. And he was killed. All his life wasn't taken from him. He laid it down for us. And yet, when he was raised, when he showed himself, what was it that he said to his disciples? All authority has been given to me. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. All authority is given unto me under heaven. Therefore, go. He sends us to do the same. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now we're back to Babylon. And lo, he says, I will be with you Always, whether it's in a fiery furnace, whether it's in a lion's den, because all authority has been given to him, that's the one who says, I will be with you always. Whom will I fear? You're going to be with family, maybe this next week. I know you're going to be with somebody this next week. Maybe those same old people you work with week after week. But maybe you're going to be in a family situation this week and there's, there's others around the table that don't know God, that don't share your faith in Christ. How will, how will those conversations go this year? Look for mercy. Trust God. You don't need to hide. And you don't need to be difficult. You don't need to be obstinate. Look for mercy. Look for opportunities to speak the truth of the true and living God and his gracious Savior into these moments of thanksgiving, something really to be thankful about. You know, Daniel drew a line. We're going to do that this morning. As a church, we're going to share with a young man who's, who's, de- who's declaring his faith in Christ through baptism. 
he's been here in the church for a while. He's, he's grown in his faith, and he said, you know, I, I'm going to mark that faith in, in declaring it publicly before the church and before anyone that I'm a follower of the one true God. He's going to do that in these waters of baptism. And so I want you to, to, to share this moment with him, with us, a, a, a Daniel of our day who's willing to take a stand for his faith in Christ and declare that to everyone.
we live and serve the one true living God. Amen. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, for his love. His love endures forever. Amen.
Amen. I hope you go back and read the book of Daniel again, maybe in this next week. And as you do, don't read the book of Daniel saying, I am going to be like Daniel. Unless you mean, I am going to trust the true and living God, the Most High God, like Daniel trusted him. And then, like Daniel, there's a collection, a benediction that I use of several phrases out of the New Testament, words of closing challenge to us. And they fit Daniel. They, they fit us in this age that we live in. Like Daniel, trusting the Most High God, we can go into the world in peace, have courage, honor all men, and hold fast to that which is good. Encourage the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen, and good morning. Don't forget the business potluck and then the business meeting following the service over here in the Rev Center Fellowship Hall.